Welcome to episode 189 of Stage Really. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stage Really is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. We're now about a week away from the start of the Toronto Fringe, and I want to remind you that Simple Truth Theatre presents my solo play, The Commandment, at the Toronto Fringe. The Commandment is a dark comedy about what happens when an atheist discovers that he's been chosen to deliver God's new commandment, and it will be presented at the Tarragon Extra Space. You can find out all about it by finding it in your Fringe listings or by following me on my social links on Twitter and Instagram, at Phil Rickaby, and you can also find details on SimpleTruthTheatre.com. And as always, if if you want to drop me a line about the podcast, you can find it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageWorthyPod, and the website is StageWorthyPodcast.com. Now let's talk about Today Takes. Today Takes is an app and website that offers easy and affordable access to a wide variety of must-see cultural performances from plays and musicals to dance, opera, comedy, immersive experiences, and beyond. Uh, looking at the app right now, I can see that um, there's a lot of tickets there. Oh, there's rush tickets for Othello at at Stratford, as well as Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, it is a, a great spot to grab some really affordable tickets to, to shows, and uh, I highly recommend it. Today Takes makes ticket buying simple, and you can purchase tickets in less than 30 seconds. Get it on iOS and Android, or go to todaytakes.com. And remember to use the code STAGEWORTHY when you make your first purchase on the app. So this is my fifth Toronto Fringe episode of the season. So uh, remember that from now until the end of Fringe, I'll be talking to performers and creators with shows at the Toronto Fringe. And don't forget my regular Fringe roundup on both of the Saturdays of the Toronto Fringe, where I will sit down with a group of artists and talk about their Fringe to date, what shows they've loved, and more. Those episodes are recorded and released by noon on the Saturdays of the Fringe. My guest this week is Mark Brownwell. Mark is a Toronto-based playwright and is the adapter of P. Green Theatre's Three Men on a Bike, premiering at the Toronto Fringe this July. So why don't we talk about um, Three Men and a Bike? Sure. Uh, which is because uh, I misread the press release the first time I saw the first the announcement. I read Three Men in a Boat, which is and this is like sort of a, a sequel, a sequel yep. to that. Yeah. Um, so for people who who might not know what uh, Three Men in a Bike is, how would you describe that? Well, uh, it's sort of a follow-up uh, sequel to uh, an adaptation of a, a book by a guy named Jerome K. Jerome, who was a Victorian author, so mm -hmm. a guy like 1889. Mm -hmm. uh, the original book that he published, it was in serial form originally, and it was supposed to be a very serious travelogue up the River Thames. Okay. And everybody took it as comedy. Uh, instead, so uh, it turned out he had a gift for that. He had mm -hmm. uh, Jerome was a really interesting writer. He was sort of sort of jack of all trades. He he didn't wasn't really successful at anything else that he did, and mm -hmm. that was his big joke. Was the only reason I'm a writer is because I've been a failure at everything else. <laughs> uh, that turned out to be a really massive hit for him, mm. and uh, it's still in in print. It's uh, there's been several different theatrical versions. We did our version of it in 2014. Mm -hmm. It's been I wrote the adaptation in maybe 1994 or something. Well, Three Men in a Boat traveled like all over. Like you guys, it was... Well, it's still traveling. It's every, touring yeah. to Halifax uh, in June. Mm -hmm. uh, they're doing Kingston. We're probably heading back to Mumbai. Yeah. Wow. Because uh, just, uh, it was one of those sort of fluky things. One of the guys who runs this literary festival in, um, in Mumbai called the Tata Lit Live. Mm-hmm. He saw it just on a whim yeah. at the Fringe in 2014, and, and we got the email, you know, hey, do you want to go to Mumbai? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's most people's response to yeah. something like that. It would be like, yeah, sure. And all along the way, you're kind of going, this is never going to And sure yeah, enough, yeah. Wow. sure enough, we did. And, and that was uh, sort of the trip of a lifetime. So yeah. it's kind of been all over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. This will be the, the, I mean, the the new play, it's sort of its, it's sort of maiden voyage at... Uh, um, at the Fringe, which mm -hmm. is where we started the original. Yeah. The original, this we're doing like a fundraiser in June, and they'll be doing it again, and that'll be the fourteenth, fifteenth production. Of it. Did it did it travel like to basically every Fringe in Canada, or because I saw it certainly hit fringe. some of the some of the major ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we did Winnipeg, we did 
Edmonton. Mm -hmm. uh, we never got to Vancouver. Mm -hmm. We did Toronto. We did mm -hmm. Ottawa. They did really well in mm -hmm. Ottawa. Mm -hmm. uh, they got a Critics Circle Choice Award, and then we did Best of the Fringe in a couple of those places. Mm -hmm. uh, we did the next stage uh, the yeah. year after it, mm -hmm. and they got a Dora nomination for that. The three men. Nice. Um, and so we started touring it about into sort of larger venues than the Fringe. Mm -hmm. uh, basically, a show. It's designed to tour. Yeah, uh, the set is a stool and a dog. I yeah, a dog, and that's it. <laughs> so, um, you know, once you do that and you get a successful run going, people start asking, "Well, what what else have you got?" Sure. So that's why we decided to sort of look into the further writings of him. And and Jerome had a a, a, a couple of interesting books that came afterwards. Not as not as famous as the first mm -hmm. one, but uh, for example, he was a failed actor. Mm -hmm. His sister had been a very successful actor on the Victorian stage, mm -hmm. and it was a really good time to be an actor because you could actually make a living. He couldn't. <laughs> he was that bad. And so he wrote a, a little sort of satirical piece called uh, My Life on Stage and Off. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about three men on, on, a, bice, on a bicycle taking a, a bike tour of Europe. It's also about his sort of feeling around as a, as a, as a failed actor. So mm -hmm. we're kind of throwing in little sort of theatrical flares and touches into it. Are, is that, have you combined two, two books into one for that? Or is it number no? of books? Yeah, uh, yeah. He also, his, it, I guess his other most famous one was a series called the idler, idle thoughts of an idle fellow. Mm -hmm. And he just like, he, he's a very funny writer. It's very, you could call him sort of proto Woodhouse. Mm -hmm. Some people compare him to like early, early Python, that very sort of weird, dry okay. British humor that comes at you from an odd angle. Angle. And he's writing around what? Around when? Uh, end of the nineteenth century. End of the nineteenth century. Yeah. Uh, Three Men on a Bike is set in nineteen hundred. Okay. Because it, their previous trip was such a disaster, it takes them like years and years and years in order to get up the balls <laughs> to to go on tour to to do it again. Mm -hmm. And this time they decide to stay on dry land, mm -hmm. and they uh, decide to uh, do a bicycle tour of Germany up into the Black Forest. And Did that go any better than the boat trip? No. no? Okay. In fact, it was a little more dangerous because <laughs> they're just in the in the boat, they're just in a canal, right? Right. This is like they are basically trying to get up the German Alps and they the brake in the bicycle at the time hadn't quite been developed properly Oh my yet. goodness. It was a very new kind of thing. Mm. So uh, it's a lot more dangerous, shall we say. Okay, yeah. And it's kind of a clash of of uh, cultures as well. Mm -hmm. um, Jerome had a lot to say about uh, about Europe and, and traveling in Europe, mm -hmm. and uh, we keep it very very light. But uh, it's there's some interesting sort of observations about it. Hmm. Um, and you were saying like three men in a boat was basically like a stool and a stuffed mm -hmm. dog. Um, what does three men on a on a bike look like? Well, we promise no bicycles. Okay, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it may actually have no set whatsoever. Okay, uh, that's we'll certainly see. tourable. It is absolutely <laughs> tourable, yeah. And it, it's kind of designed that way, too. Yeah. We, use a, a, we use a style called uh, spoken decor. Okay. It's something that we've done, my, my partner and I, Sue Miner, have done for a long, long time. It's basically a storytelling style, mm -hmm. very theatrical, almost very like Victorian music hall style, mm -hmm. uh, which fits the period really well. So... Uh, it's the old Shakespeare quote, you know, uh, think when we talk of horses that you see them. Mm -hmm. uh, spoken decor is essentially you paint the scene with your words and with the physical action. Okay. It's a very okay. physical form of mm -hmm. theater, even though it's a narrative. Hmm. And um, it's we've had some great success with it in different kind of genres. We've been yeah. doing a lot of historical genres lately. Um, and we just really like sitting in the past and, and it, it allows us a little more freedom in terms of what we present. Does it does does working with uh, uh, the past and history allow you uh, a little more freedom to comment on the now because it's yeah. in the past? Yeah, it's the old Brechtian trick of yeah. distancing, mm -hmm. uh, which they called verfremdung. You make you make it about something else, something mm -hmm. completely alien, and yet you comment on society now. Right. I used to think it was a political. I mean, Brecht used it as, as a political tool, but it's actually very useful as a theatrical convention okay. as well. Uh, just it's very you know it's light comedy. There's no yeah. we're not trying to uh, not trying to say anything deeply profound. In fact, one of the characters said this play wouldn't elevate a cow. You know, it's, just, it's just straight up light British comedy. I think people do like to see uh, white collar mm. middle upper middle class men misbehaving and, and, and getting their comeuppance. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The first one's like that, and the second one's very much like that, mm. too. It's that sort of 
confident British disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, it works really well with the crowds, and it, as it turns out, it's kind of a universal uh, because the books are very well known. Just, just not, a, not, not just here, but also obviously in England, but also around the world. Mm -hmm. like, we couldn't believe how many people knew the the book the book in Mumbai when we toured the original show. There. Really. They knew everything. They knew the characters. They 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 used three men in a boat for training in English. Like huh. they use it as a as a an example of, of of English and British writing. Do you think they they knew it better than audiences here do? Absolutely. What what would it like? What is there a difference in performing a show where people know the source material better than the people at home? Like when you perform it at home and people don't know it, are yeah. people reacting very differently? Well, people do know it here, but not with the intensity. Mm -hmm. uh, we. We haven't tried, uh, we haven't uh, done it in England yet, and it's a bit like Coles to Newcastle, you know, mm -hmm. like these who yeah. are these damn Canadians coming over <laughs> doing our, our classic, right? Uh -huh. But in Mumbai, there there I mean there are a number of cultural differences that, mm -hmm. that were very interesting. Um, the audience is far more active. Oh, okay. Um, they have a different sense of space and barrier in, in terms of like no fourth wall. So. At the end of a show, it's it's for ours anyway. It was typical to for the audience to rush backstage to thank the actors. Oh, really? Okay. And we had a. a Did anybody warn you about that? No. No. Okay. okay. We had a wonderful. That in fact they were half undressed in the in the dressing room right. when when the, a crowd of folks just came busting in to thank them, <laughs> and they were completely caught off guard. Yeah. And the stage manager was there trying to hold the door, going, "They're Canadians. They're Canadians. Don't." You know, yeah, <laughs> uh, and it was it was uh, quite interesting. There, there, the, well, the culture shock there was crazy. Mm. Mumbai was amazing. Like, yeah, it was a, sort of the trip of a lifetime. Yeah, yeah. It's a really humongous city, and and uh, the culture shock, the you know, juxtaposition of intense poverty with the intense wealth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Side by side on the street, it's it was quite a shock. For that us. must be a shock. That must yeah. be a shock. Um, do you, I mean? Considering when this play was written, or sorry, when when the original source material was written, mm -hmm. uh, with in a way, that almost sort of feels uh, contemporaneous with the era where there was this very severe poverty and there was very severe, like a uh, extreme wealth at the same time. Yes, um, I mean it, it's it's very light comedy. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of social. Um, Social mention. It's not Dickens. Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's something that's a, a little more just very light satirical. Sure. Also, too, uh, you can compare. You know, in, in Mumbai, yeah, there there is that. Here, though, uh, there's a difference, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's good that it it has a cultural re it still has a cultural resonance. For me, mm -hmm. it has more to do with the fact that Canadians have all kinds of really terrible camping stories <laughs> and that's what the show is about and that's sure. what the new show is about as well mm. you know getting out in nature and all that and just the disaster that ensues we're not prepared sure. for it uh, but that's the closest sort of connection okay. I can take what is it that's that's been drawing you I mean aside from because when did you start being interested in, in, in basing your your more recent works in the past because I don't think that's something you'd, you'd that it's not a long-standing thing yeah well it, it's it, it comes with um, age <laughs> and uh, a couple of a couple of things when my wife first and I first started to do our shows we were working you know we graduated from uh, from the school and we toured around but we never toured around together mm -hmm. we were like two years out of school and she would be in New Brunswick I'd be in you know somewhere else like mm -hmm. Regina or something yeah. and it's not a great way to keep a relationship together no so we kind of made a conscious decision to, if we wanted to stay together, to start doing our own stuff. Yeah. So it was really a personal decision as opposed to, we will make the great theater, mm -hmm. you know. And we first started with all, you know, I see with, with students now, you start with very earnest theater, social social justice theater. Yeah. Uh, I think our first one was about uh, Vietnam veterans from Canada. Mm -hmm. And it was all a bunch of monologues. So it was very much uh, documentary drama, yeah. serious stuff, right? We did a number of these. They were actually pretty successful. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of get, you know, you kind of get sick of that kind of style. Uh, and uh, we started uh, sort of drifting into sports. Mm -hmm. and the idea of sports and theater and how they, they're sort of they're sort of intermingled. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, one of our first very successful shows was about the Gretzky trade way back in like '88, mm -hmm. and that ended up being a really good show for us like right. we toured, toured all around and uh it, it sort of struck a note and we realized wow sports there seems to be some kind of connection mm. right? 
And then we did um, a show called Play Balls, which is about a female umpire trying to break into the major leagues. Mm -hmm. And that was based on a true story, and uh, that one was was really something. So we didn't we weren't always doing historical right. theater. Then um, I was listening to um, a guy uh, named Gary Cates who'd written a biography on this on uh, the Chevalier Deon, who was the famous trans uh, person in uh, in Baroque France, mm -hmm. like the the grandmother of all trans people. And we we got in, time, in in contact with him, and we wrote this one piece that's still touring, like it's mm. you know, it had a last tour uh, or last show in Chicago. Uh, this summer, and then of course the the students at George Brown just did it as well. Mm. So that's kind of our first dip into the historical. Right. Uh, after that, it was very like we we we're very eclectic, mm -hmm. and I think most people are these days yes, in terms yeah. of their production. You know, there's no one specific movement that we like. I was trained with Brecht. Mm -hmm. When I was at the school with my partner, we didn't do Shakespeare. The, the head of the school is a Marxist, so we did we did Brecht, Brecht, Brecht. <laughs> some good, some bad. <laughs> Uh, so consequently, there was always that kind of social element to it, and and uh, sort of a left wing bent to it. So yeah. We did a show about uh, a Swiss clown revolt during the Middle Ages. We did um, a number of different shows. We did a show about a, an artist by the name of Joseph Cornell, mm -hmm. uh, who was a, a, a sort of an, a surrealist in in New York. Mm -hmm. uh, we did a show about Martha Stewart at Buddy's that was really popular, and a bunch of your fellow classmates mm -hmm. were in it too. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we've kind of been all over the map. Yeah. It just, we're always looking to generate new material. I'm working right now on a piece on the Dadaists, but mm. the, 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 the female Dadaists, the ones who are forgotten, like, uh, Hannah Hoch and, uh, Annie Hennings, mm. who performed at the, uh, Cabaret Voltaire, mm. trying to find a space for that. Yeah. And it's the exact opposite of three men on a bike. It's much, it's much further out there. Sure. Like performance, mm. performance art kind of style. So we, we really are very eclectic. This one uh, has been our most uh, sort of successful venture mm -hmm. so far, just in terms of it's it's very odd for us to write a sequel. Yeah. Because normally you do a show, it does okay or it doesn't do okay. Sure. You move on to something else. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. one, the demand is there. So like we're, we're essentially going to be uh, continuing it. And yeah. hopefully it will be as good as the other one. I think it is. <laughs> we're, we're approaching it from a very... Uh, distinctive sort of point it's really great to revisit those characters mm -hmm. and to, to sort of adapt stuff that's new for them yeah so that was really fun for me revisiting because the characters are wonderful it's a character driven piece yeah and they're they're very each one is unique and very british and very uptight so. is it uh i mean in terms of uh, i mean have you started rehearsals for it yet are you uh, yeah we've had a couple of workshops yeah. um uh, we don't go into it. We we open in the fringe in in July. Mm -hmm. uh, we're at the Tarragon Main Space, and uh, uh, you know we'll have one workshop in May, and then yeah. another. I think three weeks before we 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 open it mm -hmm. up. Uh, but we've been we've been sort of kicking it around for about a year and a half now, yeah. anyway. So we, that's the way we develop work. Yeah, yeah. It's good to have. I mean, you have sort of a track record which is good to go into fringe with mm -hmm. um can we talk for a, a bit and well, i'm very curious one of the things i always talk about on, on the podcast is is people's theatrical origin story like like what made you want to do this and what was your path from from there to here you mean just to go into theater in general yeah sure what, what was your first like well i'm i'm i, I know this because I, I i also teach at uh at george brown i teach theater history at mm -hmm. george brown and I've noticed, because uh, we've done our share of theater for young audiences as well. I have a show touring right now with a small opera company called Sh uh, Shoestring. Mm -hmm. And you see all these little kids coming in for the first time mm -hmm. seeing the show. And, and that was essentially me. I was watching like Aladdin at Bayview Glen, you know, nursery school. Yeah. And when Aladdin walked up, I just went. I want to be that. Mm. I, want to, I want to be that person. So for me, it was very early. I always pull my students every year. I say, how many people were that kid? Mm -hmm. Most of them go. Yeah. They don't have a choice. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. you're just called. It's a call. Yeah. You know? if, but, you know, there's a difference because some people, they, you know, they, they, you know, they'll do some theater. The parents put them in theater when they were kids or they do it in high school. Mm -hmm. And then it, there's, there comes a point where they say, well, that's it. I'm, I can go on and do something sensible. And there's a small subset of people who, yeah. who stick with it. Um, what was it that, that made you decide to be one of those people that stuck with it? Oh, it, it never stops being fun. Yeah. Um, I perform way less than I used to. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I just like, uh, I've been really having a lot of fun creating these things. I didn't consider myself a playwright mm -hmm. uh, until like my fourth or fifth play. <laughs> right. Because we were just generating content sure. to be able to work together, you know? So you, you develop a stable of, of people, uh, community that uh, we work with uh, constantly, Ron, one of mm -hmm. your... Uh, one of your classmates mm -hmm. is Ron Kells, one of one of those, um, and it's always it's always fun. I always think it's never going to happen, mm -hmm. as you know. You yeah. kind of go, I don't know how in the hell this is going to work, but it's never gotten to be a job for me. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm still at it. Yeah. Also, too, I think it sounds odd, but we've remained small on purpose. Mm -hmm. Like we we really you know we don't have a space. We we don't we've never had operating funding. We rely. A little bit on on uh, project grants, but we can't really expect that to keep happening mm -hmm. the way things are going. Yeah, um, and we're at an age now where you know we can do our own stuff. Yeah, and just as long as we can do our own stuff, mm -hmm. you know, opening it some giant monster thing would be nice. But it's it's kind of nice just having control over it. Yeah, you know, and we've we've done larger projects as well. We wouldn't have had any success had we not done it ourselves. And yeah. That, when it first when we first started out like in 88 or something like that um all of the you know the co the common knowledge was you don't do it yourself you're yeah. an actor you can't mm -hmm. be a writer if you're an actor you can't be a director if you're an actor right you had your own little slot and if you said oh i want to be a playwright in an audition they would look at you like you had nine heads yeah. right now that's completely changed well because when i was in when i was when i was in, at george brown that was like the the prevailing uh, uh knowledge yeah. was was oh, yeah. uh, you? We are training you to be an actor. If you, if you know, uh, don't. And people would say like, if you can do something like, if you, if you can stage manage, don't mention it. If you can playwright, don't man it. Don't, mm -hmm. don't mention it. And uh, occasionally somebody would say, well, you know, if you, if you fail as an actor, you can always create your own work. You could do the Fringe Festival or something like right. that. Yeah. And that seemed to be the the prevailing well, I, attitude at the time. There was a there was a huge snobbery around the fr Fringe. That's no longer the case. No. Because the larger theaters have recognized that the Fringe is an incubator yeah. for new ideas. In fact, the creative content that is going on in Canadian theaters from the Fringe, there's no healthier section than the Fringe. No, absolutely. The money's not great. People can make money on the Fringe tour, but you have to like really narrow down the sort of scope of your art you yes. can't have like 12 person shows no you can really only do like like two people or yeah. something like that yeah um but it's it, it's sort of fascinating to me how um i think it's, it's taken a long time for the acting education complex for want of a better phrase to 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 accept the fact that what what those of us who have been in, in the industry for for a while is that creating your own work is essential to a career in the theater Absolutely. for most people. Yeah, and that that didn't necessarily, like do it, your DIY stuff mm -hmm. was not the case. Now it, you have to. Yeah. Like we, we tell that to our, our, our graduating stu students. Mm -hmm. DIY, you, you have to create your own stuff. It's the only way to get noticed. Yes, yeah. You know, and and that's how we got to work on larger projects. Because mm -hmm. like I have a, a very major, uh, a couple of major writing projects going on that has nothing to do with our company right mm -hmm. now. And I wouldn't have had those opportunities had we not self-produced. I had an agent. I, it was like in 1988. We were doing a little tiny show in the Rivoli. It was Bob Naismith mm -hmm. from Theater Pass. He was wonderful, right? Just a little, you know, bar side show mm. and stuff. Uh, it was a great show. And this, this old agent by the name of Frank Hogg came up to me and, and said, uh, who produced this? And I said, uh, we did. We did it ourselves. You know, y'all, you're fools. <laughs> never, never spend your own money. You know? <laughs> and it's like, well, you know what, Frank? Yeah. Guess what? We did, and we got noticed because of it. We got work out of that show. Yeah. So that's the way to do it these days. That's I, in a way, in a weird way, it's always been the way to do it. And you you get to maintain creative control. The the only drag is that theater, unlike the nineteenth century, mm -hmm. it, it's a lot harder to to make a real living at it. Sure. It's also hard to find. Like there's a, a dearth of affordable spaces in this city, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so and that that sort of also pre presents a bit of a barrier, which is why Fringe is such an essential part of uh, of yeah. doing anything because it doesn't cost you thousands of dollars to enter. Well, you know that, and and uh, you know, God bless the Fringe. Mm -hmm. Uh, God bless the smaller festivals. Yeah, uh, it's astonishing to me every year looking at the list of the companies that didn't get into the fringe. Mm -hmm. Hundreds and hundreds of them on the list. Yes, there's there's a desire and there's a hunger for theater and to produce art, and it's not being served. Um, it's just not being served. I I don't think the 
arts councils expected that kind of an explosion no um in terms of how many people were interested in it now whether that waffs and wanes who knows yeah but the fact is it is it is the theatrical the artistic engine that's driving canadian theater it ain't stratford no you know i mean you just look at the shows that have that have become staples of of canadian theater you can look at kim's convenience for example which has toured the world to kick in my hair the uh even the drowsy chaperone i remember the year after that hit broadway everybody was doing musicals at the fringe oh yeah yeah it flipped flipped really fast yeah yeah. but you know these are these are it this is where the work is happening where yeah. people are creating interesting stuff. Yeah. And th- yeah. that's really great. I mean, Toronto and the, you know, the, the problems that we're facing now in terms of the condoization of it and, and you know, all these, the, the, all these, the storefront movement, I think, mm-hmm. you know, it has to move on somewhere else, essentially. Like I, we know loads of artists who mm-hmm. moved to Hamilton. Yeah. Even Hamilton's starting to get crazy, but that's yeah. the way it works, right? Yeah. The artists are the first ones to move into the grottier neighborhoods mm-hmm taking up the storefronts, taking up, you know, the, yeah. the, the little, uh, you know, hipster kind of joints. And that's when, that's when it happens. Yeah. And the artists get the boot. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that's what's going on in, in Toronto right now. Yeah, so absolutely. It's, it's, I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because I think there's, we've been a bit ghettoized in, in terms of our art. It's like mm-hmm. the bluer, yeah. you know, uh, you could, you know, just in, in terms of, like places like Witchwood, mm-hmm. Witchwood Barnes, it's a beautiful space, mm-hmm. but it's considered distant, and it shouldn't be. No, it shouldn't. Like it's, it's really downtown, it you know. It is downtown. It doesn't take that. It's yeah. not hard to get to, you know. Yeah. It's also you look at, at spaces like like the coal mine, which is again, it has that when you're downtown, it has that barrier because some people, you know, they have this. Oh, I can't go past Pape or whatever there. Yeah. Their border is, but they serve a neighborhood Mm -hmm. and they do quite well out there. And I think that it's something that, that if we were to spread out more, that, 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 that could be. That's something in the, in in, that I don't think the master planners are figuring out. I think, I think a lot of, a lot of, or a a lot of, (laughs) what would you call them? Politicians, Mm -hmm. administrators, they, they, they think that theater isn't, isn't vital as a community glue. No. And it is, but. Like even even places like the Canada Council now, mm-hmm. uh, the way that Simon Bro has taken uh, the idea of theater, uh, I don't want to. I've named Simon Bro, but there's this attitude mm-hmm. amongst higher echelon administrators that you should, you know, let's have, let's do virtual theater, let's have theater with robots, yeah, uh, let's do Hamlet with you know uh, uh, Ophelia in St. John's and, and Hamlet over in Vancouver. Yeah. Let's have these little webisodes. You know, and to me, honestly, that's not theater. It could no. be something great. A million people could watch it. That's fantastic. Go for it. Yeah. Don't call it theater. Because there's no methexis. There's no yeah. sharing. With theater the has to happen. The audience has to be in the same room. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just watching Netflix. Yeah. And that's primary. And, you know, can't knock Netflix. Like, no. It's all, it's all entertainment. It's all wonderful. There's some very serious, some wonderful stuff. But the fact is, theater provides provide something that none of those other things can provide there's a very there's a very different thing that happens in a room full of people watching a movie than in a room watch of people watching theater yeah it feels different it feels it does. different. you know and, yeah. and I, yeah and it's it's not just like the fourth wall or what would you call it the suspension of disbelief mm-hmm. because i find you know movies are so immersive sure you know you can suspend your disbelief quite easily but there's some weird live sharing that comes with theater that's beyond that it's Mephaxis. Absolutely. And it, it, you can do something so simple in a theater that people would never accept in a movie. But for an audience yeah. watching it live, it becomes magic. Yeah. Which is a fascinating. A We've fascinating worked a lot thing. with the, the puppet mongers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, for, for years and years, decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm always uh, astonished by, uh, I mean, they do things like found puppetry. Well, yeah. they'll, they'll take items in a room and turn it into... Uh, some sort of a puppet. Yeah. And the, the amount of, the suspension of disbelief is remarkable. Like you can mm-hmm. put a garbage bag over your arm and treat it as a puppet. It would be yeah. more believable sometimes than an actor, <laughs> you know. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, when you guys were, when you guys were, were starting to create your own work, it was out of necessity so that you yeah. could hold your relationship together. Aside from, like, did you guys have any trepidation that it wouldn't work or were you just like, this has to work if we're going to do this yeah no there was uh, there was no dark night of the soul mm-hmm. uh, we 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 loved doing we love working together we'd worked mm-hmm. together for three years at school mm-hmm. we loved working together we loved being partners mm-hmm. and uh it, it just it just we kind of fell into it oddly yeah. 
our first uh, sort of major show was a thing called The Blue Wall, which was about cops. We interviewed a bunch of Metro Toronto policemen, and uh, uh, I was uh, directing it, and uh, one of the actors had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I had to step into his to his part, mm-hmm. and Sue took over, and she has never looked back. She's been become one of the best directors mm-hmm. in the city. Yeah. So it really was by chance that we both kind of, I headed into sort of playwriting and, and yeah. uh, libretti, libretti and, and Sue, Sue headed into uh, to direction. And mm-hmm. she's damn good. I've been yeah. writing her coattails for years. <laughs> well, th- how did you guys end up uh, 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 teaching? Uh, like now you're, uh, uh, she's direct, director at, the, at George Brown Theatre School. She's coordinator. coordinator. Yeah. And yeah. You're, you're teaching theatre art or sort of theatre history. And, yeah. And some other things. So how did you guys find your way to to teaching? Well, I mean, because George Brown is a community college, it's considered a trade school. Mm-hmm. And trade schools hire working people. Mm-hmm. And that's how we came into it. Uh, the paycheck was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's been a, a, a teaching and a learning experience because I've I've gotten to do to read all those plays teaching theory history that mm. I, you know I've never had the time to kind of go. Oh, I really should read that play, <laughs> you know, because it wasn't particularly well read. Mm. Now the amount of stuff I know is it, it, it's mind expanding, and mm. it's also very daunting because the more I learn, the less I know. I look at my old teaching notes and I go, boy. I really had no idea what I was talking about. Isn't it fascinating how 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 that's sort of the case? The more yeah. you the more you pick up, the more you realize there is to learn. Oh, it, yeah. it's yeah. And uh, the one the one that I've been laughing at is the, the Dunning Kruger effect. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever yes, heard of that. I have. Yeah. Mount Mount Stupid. Yes. You know, the you go on any uh, NASA post and watch all the flat earthers sort of weigh in, yeah. and and that's it. Like the you know, if you become a journeyman historian. It's it's kind of daunting to realize how much you don't know. Yeah, you kind of have to. It's always nice to be have those theories confirmed. Like mm-hmm. I'm just totally obscure, but I'm reading on a thing on Erwin Erwin Piscator, who is a, sort of a contemporary of Bertolt Brecht mm-hmm. in Berlin, Weimar Germany. And I've been teaching about Piscator, but I've never really read a decent biography on him. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just reading it now and I'm going, yes, I'm glad <laughs> I I'm glad I was right about this guy because I had very very uh, little information. I was just at a wonderful. Uh, book launch last night at Pass Marine. Mm-hmm. Martin Julian's wonderful actor. He's yeah. one of the guys we worked with a number of occasions. He uh, sort of compiled a history of, of theater Pass Marine. Oh, right. I did hear about this. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, I, I snatched up the book last night. They had a wonderful reading. A bunch of, uh, a bunch of the old Pass Marine people showed up. Mm. And uh, to have that history down is really important. Yes. Because yeah. th- it's easy to lose institutional memory. Absolutely, it uh, is. Specifically with theaters in this town, we tend to think that, oh, nothing happened before us. And yes, yeah. A lot happened before us. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting because speaking about theater history, um, you know, I think a lot of people take things like Factory Tarragon, Passamari for granted. They've always been there. Yeah. They, you know, but they came out of a particular uh, movement and explosion mm-hmm. and, uh, of, of, of creativity in theater. And they, they were the original indie, independent theater. Yeah. They were they were indie theaters. Yeah, they called themselves independent theaters, but yes, but yeah. they they were the you know they were the storefronts of their day. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know it, again it's the it's that it's the loss of institutional memory that yeah. if we don't remember where they came from, we can't really know where to go. I always love uh, you know working with with new uh, with new actors, fresh actors who are doing these wonderful things mm-hmm. and they think that they came, came up with the idea. Sure. Yeah. And you go, well, actually, no, I, uh, I think it was Meyerhold. Who did that. <laughs> That's another, yeah, you get to be very pedantic after a while. You read I'm, too much. I'm sure. But also, also, I mean, I remember when I was in first year theater school, I knew everything yeah. again, Kruger Denning. Um, yeah. I knew everything in first year. And I think by the third year I was like, no, actually, I don't know anything, but I think my first six yeah. months of, of school were there's pretty that, certain. There's that old trope, and you know, uh, we had a, a, one of our instructors say, you'll, "You'll be ten years out, and you're still a student." You know, and we went, "Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's, yeah." It's yeah. very true. If you make it ten years, you're a veteran. You know, yeah. But also, the, the learning experience of just doing shows and doing work yeah. is is way more important than than what you learn in the three years. I can remember at one point in theater school, Peter Wilde saying, "Listen." At some point, 10 years from now, something that you don't understand now is just going to drop and you're going to be, oh, that's what they're talking about. And I thought, listen, old man, 
why can't you just come out and tell me this? Don't play this b- bullshit. And then 10 years after, I was like, yeah. oh, yes. but it would never have meant anything to me if yep. I'd just been like, here's the here's the thing you need to know. Yeah. It's it's funny the, the 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 instructors you remember. I had a we had an instructor named Michael Mawson at the school, mm. uh, and uh, I always thought he hated me. And anything I did, he would always like just really shake his head. Yeah. And, and uh, but it's odd that it's like I, I didn't realize it until about five years out that Peter had actually been pulling for me, mm. or not Peter, uh, Michael had actually yeah. been, been pulling for me at the school, mm. and he'd said things that come back to me now. Where other instructors that I actually loved more, mm. I, I don't quite recall what they were talking about, but his stuff I mm-hmm. still hear in the back of my head. Yeah, he's just somebody who's in your court, but you don't—you never knew it. Right, right, right. You know. Yeah, and it comes with you know it's an immaturity, and we see it in in our students too. They they look like they're adults, but they're not. They're yeah. They're, they're still growing. They're still they're still very affected by stuff that goes on, and of course too, it's a. a a totally new ball game in ter- yeah. terms of education. Do you find that because I know people come to come to, to George Brown at different points in their in their lives. Some people come straight out of high school. And yeah. Some people come with a few years under their belt. Maybe they are 25, mm-hmm. 26, maybe even 30. I remember when I started, there was a girl who was 30 and we thought she was so old. Mm-hmm. But Peter would also always say things like, I wish you were 30. I could teach you so much if you were 30. And you're always like, no, teach me now. Um, but um, do you do you see much of a difference between students who are right out of high school or students who've had a few years under their belt? Yeah, the, yeah. the biggest difference was we, we sort of lived through uh, the changing, the elimination of grade 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the new cohort uh, was far more immature. Right. Um, well, because some of them came out, came out of school when they were 17, 18. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, you'll get, you get a student who's, who's 17, who's remarkably mature mm-hmm. and wonderful. And then you'll get somebody, you could have a, like a, a 30 year old in your class who's a complete sure. place and totally immature. Yeah. It, that doesn't matter, but you do have to be aware of that because mm-hmm. even though they look like adults, you, you, you know that, you know, you have to, you have to be careful and, yeah. and uh, just steer them in the right direction, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. This has been a discussion about George Brown. Well, I mean, this, this sort of turned into that, but yeah. um, in terms of, uh, of of Fringe, I mean, you and you and Sue have uh, a long history of producing mm-hmm. it at the Fringe. Yeah. Um, do you remember? Did we talk about the first show at the Fringe? Do you remember what that was? Yeah, the first show we did was in 1989 mm-hmm. in Toronto, Toronto Fringe. Gregory Nixon was running it, um, and there was a parade. That was the big thing I remember. Nobody thinks of Toronto as being cool, so you know you don't do your parades, your fringe parades. But Gregory or- organized a cr- parade down Bloor Street, oh, really? and it was us and about twenty other people. I think Sky Gilbert was there, uh-huh. Hume Baugh, uh, I think Eddie Eddie Roy, um, and we had a show called uh, High Sticking, which uh-huh. was three period plays. That was um, that was sort of in our sports craze mm-hmm. at the time. And it was that was one of the pieces was the Gretzky piece, and we'd written some companion pieces that went on to do very well. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a one woman show called Eleanor that we did about a hockey uh, field hockey girl that ended up being done by Tina Fey of all people oh, shit. in Chicago. Yeah, wow. um, that one still gets done. It's it, it went into those uh, um, audition books. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's kind of weird watching it like. 20 years, 30 years. Do people later. ever show up at their audition doing a, doing one of those? Just pieces? happened. Oh, yeah, really? <laughs> yeah. It's a bit, you know, you, you look at that little thing, your name, and then you see 1960 and then a dash and right. a blank. <laughs> and then you go, oh, oh I feel yes. a little, I feel, I feel death running a pace, but. It's interesting, the, the parade. I didn't know that Toronto had a parade because as far as I know, the that only fringe that still does a parade is Edmonton. Yeah. It, it was it was a blast, dude. Nobody knew what the hell was going on. It was a very small fringe. I mean, we yes, did our show yeah. at the the Palmerston Library. Mm-hmm. The poor Alex, bless its heart, missed the poor Alex. Oh fuck, the what poor a, Alex. Yeah. What a what a fulcrum that was. Yeah. It's a poutineery now or something, but yeah. No, I remember that space. It was it was uh, like that. That's where uh, Human Remains premiered in. That's true. In Ontario, in Toronto. Yeah. And Jim uh, Jim left the phone off the hook of the box office, and uh, you know. It helps having Brent Carver in the cast in mm. a fifty seat house, right? Yeah, and it was just insane. Like you could not get a ticket. <laughs> that's something that the Fringe kind of delivers too. Oh sure, it's you know you have people like screaming at the poor volunteers because they can't get in because it's sold out. Yeah, and that kind of um, what would you call it? 
Passion, melting potter, yeah. passion. Yeah, you don't quite get elsewhere. No, you don't. You don't see lineups for theater like like that outside of Fringe. I remember lining up for Kim's Convenience at the first Fringe run, right. um, an hour and a half before tickets even went on sale, just to make sure that yeah. we got tickets for it. You know, so it's rare to see that kind of that kind of excitement for a show. You're right, and and it's a festival. Set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you get that with the festival festivals and hot dogs mm. and, and stuff, and it, it's just it's really electric. And yeah. uh, you know, people of like the drowsy chaperone. It actually didn't start at Fringe. It started in the back of the Rivoli. I think. No, because it was it, like somebody's somebody's engagement wedding, party. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but to see that, like, I actually preferred that version the best mm. of mm. all the versions. You know, the fringe version. Yeah. I'm biased, but I mean, we've been doing it for, we've been doing it for a long time. This is our, this is our 10th sort of pea green show at the fringe. Nice. Uh, And most of them have gone on to something else, something larger. Yeah. Uh, So the fringe is working for us, man. Yeah. yeah. And our company, when we first started out, when the fringe started out here, it was copied, sort of copied on Edmonton, on Mm -hmm. Paisley's model. Yeah. But um, it was much smaller. It was providing a function within the community where there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, we were the sort of third wave of companies coming mm-hmm. out of the schools. Yeah. So we didn't have access to operating funding. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I remember one of the guys from the Canada Council coming down to the small theater caucus and going, we got nothing for you. Mm. Just do it, you know, go out and fruit, be fruitful. Uh, but we're not going to give you operating funding because right. that's done. Yeah. Right. So we were like, uh, okay, what yeah. are we going to do? Well, there was the fringe. Yeah. And, you know, there was that initial snobbery from uh, certain theaters and stuff, but they ended up. <laughs> programming fringe shows well sure they did because i remember mump and spook doing stuff at yeah. the fringe and then next thing you know they're at, they were at uh, can stage and oh yeah stuff, you know there's there's yeah. you know it they couldn't it couldn't be denied the stuff that was happening at, at fringe yeah because well that was the next generation what you know what should have happened mm. um was there should have been a massive influx of cultural dollars yeah you know, and and we were getting into that sort of neoliberal idea of, of austerity that we're still that still hangs like an yeah. albatross around our necks, and yeah. it's part of Toronto and a part of yeah. you know the whole economic model we're yeah. in now. And uh, that was a, a great opportunity that was lost to mm-hmm. make Toronto a real theatrical cultural mm-hmm. hub mm-hmm. and to basically expand the economy. You know, like there, there's you know you don't hear. A, <laughs> I, I've been through this because I've been a counselor at Equity and I've sure. been on the Toronto Theatre Caucus, Theatre Alliance. So I'm not a huge fan of those arts administrators who go, well, look at the spin off, the artistic spin offs and stuff, as they're trying to convince some mogul mm-hmm. to give them money, begging yeah. on their knees. Look, look, there's spin off. You know, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm more of an art for art's sake guy. Sure. And if, if people can't recognize the value of art as cultural, a cultural activity, something to grow the to grow our culture, to grow our yeah. way of life, and, and to to make life better, like yeah. to not make us slaves to yeah, you know that sort of ideology. I feel like that one of the one of the problems is that when the average person who's not a regular theater goer thinks about theater, they think of the big musicals at the Mervish theaters, yeah. or like massive shows like that, mm-hmm. and they think, oh, I can't afford that, or that's like for people who have a lot of money, and they don't see the vibrant underground indie stuff that's, that's happening. And a lot of them don't even see, they don't even think of the factory Tarragon or Passport I model. So there's, there's a, like a big jump. Yeah. They think that it's something that they can't access. Yeah, there's a, I mean, well, uh, it's dissemination. Mm-hmm. Also too, I mean, there's been, there's revolutions going on across, like the whole idea of going to see something in some dusty little place somewhere, yes, which yes. was, you know, a factory, factory lab theater was that. You'd yeah. go to the candle factory and get covered in soot mm-hmm. and see something really crazy. Yeah. Uh, but there were people who would make that journey. Sure. Now it's a co- totally different game. You don't have the sort of coverage, uh, media coverage, because no. journalism is, you know, pretty well dead. Everything's dead. any any theater stuff is behind a paywall now. Either either paywall or it's all online. There's no yeah. like you can't access it in print or anything. Yeah. Um, there's another thing. <laughs> it's more of a societal issue, I mm-hmm. think, and it's something that I sort of discovered when I do my my classes and stuff looking back at history it's our shrinking middle class mm-hmm. if you yeah. have an educated middle class and this is like david mamet says sure. this if you have an educated middle class they want to go see theater and yeah. they'll take a chance they'll take yeah. a risk um but when you have no middle class theater is only for the intensely poor or the intensely rich and yeah. that's it and that's our society right now yeah. we we are there's this huge gap as yeah. those middle class jobs disappear without money in the pocket the middle class have no 
no desire. They're too busy beating the wolves in the door yeah. to go see theater. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Uh, sounds depressing, but... but I mean, yeah. Yes, yeah. we'll try to keep this uh, on the up. Um, actually, uh, one last thing before we finish off. I wanted to talk about creating uh, a style. Mm-hmm. Because you created uh, a style, or you developed a style for spoken decor, and you, yeah. you based that on a music hall, um, songs and things like that. What... What for you went into uh, creating a specific style for uh, for these shows? Well, we've always uh, uh, had a storytelling style very early on in our in our company's history. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't necessarily period stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for example, uh, our cop show. It's, it's a very distinctive storytelling style, right? It's not uh, the well-made play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a series of monologues. Uh, in this case, there's a more of a narrative thread, but there's always this physicality. We have to because. Um, we don't have a set mm-hmm. and uh, we were, that th- th- was one of those things where, you know, we thought we were doing something really unique mm-hmm. with these shows. And then I read you know, all about Grotowski and the poor theater. <laughs> and it was yeah. like, well, the, you know, somebody always has done it before. Sure. Yeah. But it really very much is that it's very much poor theater and the actors have to be good enough and strong enough and energetic enough mm-hmm. in order to pull it off. It really, the spoken decor really is almost Shakespearean mm. in that, think when we speak of horses yeah. that you see them that is spoken decor right? yeah. it's a very british model uh, and the audience is part of it um and that's part of the music hall the music is is really wonderful we, we had uh riggs and toot who's a former teacher at george brown mm. he he did uh, an adaptation of a the eaton boating song for our original show three men in a boat mm. and now he's done a bicycle craze song from 1900 <laughs> called Velocipede Jiminy. Okay. It's close harmony with the three men and mm. they're really good singers. So there is music, there is a musical element to this. Somebody said, I didn't know you'd written a musical. And I said, I guess I, I guess I did. <laughs> it's like, no, not really. Mm. But there, because it's that sort of stand and deliver kind of stuff. Yeah. The story, the music fits in really well. Yeah. So were you consciously trying to develop a different style? Or was that something that just sort of like you were like, this is the only way that this can work? Is- right. Um, we're, we're um, uh, if, you, if you could call our style, it would be neo-expressionist. Mm-hmm. It's, um, we're, we're anti-realists. Okay. We don't do Uncle Vanya. Yeah. Love Uncle Vanya. But we do very presentational style theater. Mm-hmm. And that that's what feeds into okay. it, that kind of uh, storytelling style. There used to be this... You're too young, but there used to be this show called Storytime Theater on PBS. Mm-hmm. And it was a bunch of hippies who had a caravan and they filmed it. No, actually, I do remember that show. Yeah, I a lot of amazing show. stuff came yeah. out. A lot of amazing people came yeah. out of that. And that was the style that we, we liked. That's why we hooked up with uh, the Canadian Delarte guys mm-hmm. to do Venetia Lopent. Yeah. Uh, another French show that was really good. And we did it in the classic style. Mm-hmm. But it is that literally we're working out of the back of a... Of yeah. caravan sort of thing, and we've lo- we've always loved doing that. I, yeah, I was I was curious about the 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 creation of the style um, because um, when I worked with with Keystone Theater, our first question mm-hmm. was: so we want to do this this silent film thing, but how do you transfer film to theater? So right. we spent a good year trying to d- determine that. And uh, I just realized where I recognized. <laughs> that. I saw that show. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, so we like that's the Klondike you, show, right? You did the it was that the was that was our third show, yeah. actually, the Klondike show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and so it was like, how do we, how do we do, how do you do this? And so you want to tell a story in a specific way. Mm-hmm. Um, and and were you trying to do like the the spoken decor? Did that come out of the you knew you needed to tour it, or was it just what was right for this show? Well, when you hang around long enough, you start to think about practicality. Yes, yeah, yeah, the yeah. limitations aren't a bad thing, mm-hmm. aren't, you know. Uh, so yeah, we were wanting to make a very entertaining piece mm-hmm. that wouldn't, you know, uh, ruffle too many feathers. Yeah. Uh, but the style was pretty ferocious. Mm-hmm. So we kind of knew how to do it. And uh, uh, some actor, we, we call them like our company's called P green. Some actors, we work with them and they're either P green or they're not, you know, they're P green. We can work with them again because they get it. They get the language. Sure. And I mean, every company does that. Yeah. Every group of artists has their own language the mm-hmm. canadian dell'arte boys had it too yeah. right they just know how to work they've worked together in an ensemble so tight yeah that they some of them don't even have to speak mm-hmm. you know? yeah um there was uh rena polly uh and kathy uh oh she's gonna kill me for forgetting her name 
Kathy Hayes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a, a, a company um, that they did two-handed shows, mm-hmm. and they had this this weird sort of signaling thing that they used to do uh, because they did a lot of tight uh, choreo and, and, mm-hmm. and tight sort of storytelling style, and they would sniff at each other to do like changes. And oh, okay, it, it huh. was all like very uh, almost musical in huh. its weird approach. We love that kind of stuff. Yeah, it has nothing to do with naturalism or uh, you know that kind of realistic single arc kind of story stuff it yeah. really has to do with presentational very expression stuff yeah and that's what you, you guys do like that, that yeah that's, absolutely that's, that's what it. we did yeah, yeah and yeah, it's yeah. fun you know oh like, my god it's so fun like it's so fun yeah. it's so fun to subvert an audience's expectation yeah like when an audience doesn't know what they're going to get mm-hmm. um if i walk into a theater and i don't see you know i just see a stool i'm like okay oh, what's what's this you know if i don't see a set even though it's fringe it's like i expect to see something um and so yeah. my partner sue she always says that the audience wants to know in the first minute that they're in good hands mm. so you make sure to to give them something really interesting yes yeah and, and once she sees that she she you know because we've seen a lot of theater over the years some mm. really remarkable theater some really yeah. terrible theater we're on the door jury a few times and it's mm. like you know. i mean there's there's it can't all be good like you if it, you take risks and sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't and 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 that is like i'm at an age where i actually like really like watching the risk taking mm-hmm. even if they fall on their ass i really would way rather see that than yeah. a company that's phoning it in yeah 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 yeah, yeah. on a show that is safe and mm-hmm. and i i far prefer that uh, it's just yeah. it's lifeblood, and then the fringe is really good for that too. Absolutely, absolutely, because you could see like people, like especially people who are do- like it's their first thing. It's so raw and it's so yeah, so new and and the fringe does have that popular appeal. Yeah, that you know that the thing that's missing from the smaller like standalone shows, and you, you know, God God bless them, like um, so many different small companies. It managed to get a little, like Tannehill's company. Mm. They managed to get a little, you know, little tiny spaces, but doing really great. But it must be tough to do standalone stuff. We yeah. used to do that, mm-hmm. and it's the difference between a sixty thousand dollars budget and a six thousand dollars budget. Absolutely, you know, absolutely, yeah. Like you, you, the the economics of it just don't make any sense. Yeah, to do really that hard anymore. To do that Two way. weeks yeah. in the backspace of the Tarragon, and nobody comes to, you know, no critic will come to see it. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense anymore. No. The festival is, is the way to go. It's Absolutely. always been that, like it's been that way. Since. It's certainly the, the way to go to, to get something noticed and mm-hmm. to, to, to start something for sure. Yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much. It's been awesome. Hey, it's great. This has been a Homebody Productions production.